You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. Thank you for listening. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe. And I'd love after you listen to this episode or if you've already listened to some of my episodes to leave a review, especially an Apple podcast. If you do, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And I'll send you a little gift from my product line, which you can find at shop.yourjoyologist.com. All right. So on this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. Today, I have Tara Schuster on. She is a recent author. Her book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, came out in 2020 to rave reviews like seriously. Uh, in Style, Cosmopolitan, People Magazine, uh, Glennon Doyle, Goop, BuzzFeed, all gave her shout outs like, go read this book. <laughs> and um, I loved getting to hear her story. Her story is in her book. So you're going to want to get that because we touched on some things, but we didn't go all in. And yeah, I think no matter where you are in your journey of loving yourself, that Tara book and sharing things is a way, great way to look at it and to get through and to create some real shifts in your life. So uh, yeah, let's get into the episode and hear more about who is Tara? Why did she write this book? Here we go. All right. So I like talking about starting with how, what was life like for you growing up? And then especially getting into like teenage years where I can feel like we have this like pressure of what are we going to do with the rest of our life? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, what my book really gets into is a lot of it has to do with my childhood. And, you know, I grew up in a house where things came to die. You know, all the pets died. Coco the Himalayan cat died. Iggy the iguana died. Although it took us a while to figure out he was dead because we just thought iguanas were super still, but no, he had perished. Um, all the plants, uh, the orchid that had come free with purchase of the house. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, my house was under some mystery hex. Um, my parents were neglectful and it was, um, an abusive household that I grew up in. And, um, even more recently after writing the book, I've come to understand that I was just unsafe all of the time. And I knew it. I knew I was unsafe. I felt it. And it wasn't like I was unconscious. Um, I would, you know, I, I was telling someone the other day, one of my earliest memories is there was always a TV in my room, like even at like five. And I was so scared to go to bed at night. And I thought so many bad things were going to happen to me that I would blast the sound so that robbers or kidnappers or coyotes, all these things I thought they were going to come and get me, they would be scared off and they, they would know adults were in the room by the voices on the, on the TV. And that kind of neglect really took a toll on who I was and who I became. So, you know, growing up, I I was always, I never felt safe. I always thought I needed to earn people's love and validation. I was, so I was really good at school. You know, I was like the student who's like, Ms. Hunt, will you have lunch with me? You know, uh, like 
desperate, any adult I met, any babysitter, camp counselor, like, I love you, just desperate for adults. Was that sort of like in school and and whatever you're doing activity-wise, like the teacher's pet and that, like, were you not even trying to be like friends with the kids? It was just your attention was so much on the adults. I, I frankly didn't know how to have friends. And it's a big thing I write about in the book um, because my parents had no friends. And I was basically told you can't trust anybody. Everybody's out to get you. Um, you ha- you're smarter than everybody. So, and that's, like those are things your parents yeah, said like to you? explicitly said, you know, like an example, I would need, we'd be out and I'd need to go to the bathroom, but before going to the bathroom, I would have to hear a four minute lecture on the murders, rapists and kidnappers who might abduct me. So be careful, you know, any friend they had, I'd also hear, um, at one point, this is such a weird tidbit to, <laughs> that I do include in the book, but Susan Summers was my godmother. And, um, because my mom was like a, a fancy doctor and, you know, one moment, you know, Suzanne is holding me, you know, holding me lovingly and her platinum hair is all over me. And the next, my mom is telling me that's an awful person who's out to get us. We have to disown her. She's out of our family. And, I don't, you know, at this point in my life, I don't have a relationship with my mom, so I can't speculate on what her condition is, but what I've come to know, she was deeply unwell. Deeply. Your mother? Yeah, my mother was deeply, deeply unwell. And so she was giving me messages of conspiracy, paranoia, everybody's out to get us, and that's what I absorbed. So to get back to your question, like the kids, they were not even on my radar. Like I didn't even want that. So interesting. I wanted adults who could save me. That's what I was looking for. And so in my teen years, you know, how that manifested was I was, again, teacher's pet. I was at school taking all, every AP I could possibly take, all of the extra credit. I will lead this club, the honor code committee club and the uh, AP Environmental Science Club, and I'll start a literary magazine, and I'll start in the plays, and, 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 and. And so by the time I was about to go to college, I was burnt out. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I was like a piece of toast. I actually... I was like, I tried to do the least amount of possible. (laughs) No, I was done. And I thought I was done. I was like, well, all I needed to do was get myself to college. And I went to college literally as far away from home as possible. It's like the geographical furthest you could get in the continental U.S. And I'm like, I did it. Check. Done. I'm at college. Now now I'm free. Only to realize, oh, fuck. I have outrun my life, but there's a lot more to live. I don't know how to be a person. I only know how to achieve. Now what? Okay. I want to go back to a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, like from the start of like growing up, not even feeling neglected, being neglected. But you're, so you said your mom was a fancy doctor. Yeah. Like, so I think when, when many of us, like my initial reaction, when somebody says neglected, it's like, because, you know, their parents are poor or alcoholics right. or, you know, like, and you did say abusive, whatever, but like the reality is like your parents 
were neglecting you because they were consumed with their work or like just themselves as humans that included their work or like looking back um it's such a good it's a great point that you bring up and one that I'm really clear about in the book which is I was I was privileged I was not parented I was privileged um and so resources weren't really the question my parents were deeply unwell I think really, it's not that they didn't want to help me. It's not that they set out to neglect me or or be abusive. The issue really was they were psychologically distorted. And so how they treated me and my little sister was simply, I mean, that's all they knew how to do. And, you know, their lives did implode. Like you can only do that for so long before being a fancy lawyer and a fancy doctor um, doesn't work anymore when you're that level of unwell. Um, Yeah. Do you think that your parents and other people that maybe knew your family, including teachers or just like, I guess you said, you said they didn't have friends, but family members and stuff too, did, you know, because the fact of the privilege that like, oh, well, they have, you know, they are a fancy lawyer, fancy doctor, and they have money. And so they have all the things that like, that it was maybe even hard for people to see that you were being neglected or like, you know. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting. To wrap their head around that. Like, well, you have this and they could blah, blah, blah. And she has all these things or whatever. Yeah. Which I don't even know, obviously. But yeah. And I think we make up if you have money, then you don't have problems. We do make it up. And then we think, and if I have money, then I won't have problems. And that's obviously not the case. Um, but in, in my circumstance, basically everybody knew that it was a bad house, that you wouldn't want to grow up there. And um, because they were calling social services all the time. So wow. the people who knew my family, parents knew the truth and any teacher would know the truth. I I think some of the teachers were the ones calling social services. Probably because they're, yeah. Yeah. They're closest to you in in many ways. But the people who couldn't see that maybe something was very amiss were social services and any kind of, um, I think because of some of that privilege, it, you know, but they have, but they're eating like these kids are eating. Um, but I, and I also think it's complicated. Like I was talking to a friend who founded, um, uh, foster America. Uh, it's an incredible organization dedicated to really revamping how or revolutionizing foster care in this country. And something I often wonder is like, would I have been better off in protective services? Like, would that actually have been better? You don't, yeah, you and, don't know. And I don't know. And the answer is probably not. It actually was probably better to be in an environment that I think in the book, I call it was unfun. <laughs> That's like my euphemism for my childhood. Um, it was probably better because the one thing my parents really beat into my head was that education was important. And I never rebelled against that. I was just like, put your head down, do the work, get to good schools. That will save you. And it did, you know, Go ex- exposure, exposure to teachers who did care, professors who did care, friends who came from families that were so different than mine. That changed my life. Did you have any, since you were like academic and doing all the things to be the best and the top, did your parents give you any sort of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like guidance? 
not guidance, but like good job. No. <laughs> so it's like even if oh, no. you know you're like trying to be the best, but do you at least get that from the teachers? Did that like satisfy something in you that like? I mean, it, it's an interesting question because so basically the message validation was va- the word was validation. <laughs> yeah, good old validation. Um, that's my Achilles heel is validation. So in the most on the nose thing possible, I was getting no validation at home. So even if I was the top of the class getting all A's, I was always told what was wrong with me, how I couldn't do better. Um, that like, for example, I was terrible at spelling, really good at writing, reading, terrible at spelling you have dyslexia and you're never going to be able to write and it's a terrible problem and you're going to be held back. That's what I would hear. Then no one would take me to the doctor to find out if I did have dyslexia. Um, There was no caring action to figure out why am I so bad at spelling? It was just, you are innately bad and wrong and you won't succeed. And so that got drilled into me and the on the nose part is, so of course I was looking for out, external validation. And I became like such a theater kid because it was like the one place where people literally in theater, they literally applaud you. They're literally like, yay. You know? So that was really the, the, my outlet, unfortunately, external validation is a great drug. It feels really good when you're getting it, but it's a drug. It doesn't, it it can't long-term work. And it really, like, never fucking works. No, it... You know, like, really, it's our own validation that we're seeking over and over and over. And it can feel like, great, I did it. Yeah. This one moment. And then, yeah. like, no, <laughs> the uh, next things come. I still... I... Yeah. It's like, I get caught up in it still almost daily. And it's just like, yeah, looking for these other people to validate us. And it's like, it's us. It's a, and it is- a constant reminder is that... Like I remind myself all the time, like it really does not. It, I mean, it's so cliche, but it does not matter what anyone else thinks. What do I think? Do I think I did a good job? Am I proud of the work I did? And and one thing I've recently been thinking is I'm not trying to be the best me. I'm not trying to be a better me. I'm just trying to be me. That is all that like all this stuff I'm doing is just trying to be me the most essential me that I was before all this happens, using all the knowledge that I now have, you know, using all that wisdom, but just to be me. That's, that's really the best validation you could ever get. And it sounds so easy, but it's oh, so it's, fucking challenging. I mean, <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, I get it. Uh, and that's actually my, so my, my book is called F the shoulds do the once. And it's oh. about like, I gave up the actual word should mm. over 10 years ago. I love and that. it made me so mindful of everything I think, do, say, and why. And so even though also I gave this word up, like I only use it in the like, I am clear. I'm using this word for this example. The feeling of should still shows up every fucking day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but again, like since I know it, then I have to, I have this like constant, like, so it's, that's why I'm giving the, like the ways that shoulds are so embedded at us. And so fuck with us. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I should be thinner. I should this, I should be further ahead. I should have said this. I should all day long. So how to recalibrate and be like, wait, what do I believe is like, so that's my like, life hack for constantly getting clear on Trisha. 
Yeah, Trisha. What is it that you think? What do you believe? What do you want? I can't wait to read your book because that is such a key. It's like one of the ways to freedom ultimately yes. is get, letting go of how it should be or what you expected or what you thought it should be. You know, like all those things are why we suffer. Yeah. And it's again, like it's every day. Every day. Think, like we the master practice. these things and like, I got validated myself no got in the show it's I don't say the word oh still <laughs> me daily anyway back to you so you go to college and what so you went as far away as possible did you have an idea of like what you were studying or what like did you go to that college for a reason or just for the distance I <laughs> what did you I, think you were gonna be when you're escaping well I so I went to Brown and when I Toward the campus, there was this giant archway that said, speak to the past and it shall teach thee. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. I love history. I love stories. That was just like, oh, that this is my place. And my only vision for myself is that I would be drinking lattes and wearing scarves with a ruffled copy of The New Yorker in tow. This was like, and that was it. I, I didn't know like, what's my career going to be like? Uh, am I ever going to have a family? What would a partner look like? No, it was just that image of me rushing around in the cold in a great scarf uh, with a hot beverage. And, you know, unfortunately, um, by that point, I had a developed, I, I don't even know what word to say, but an addiction to weed. Weed in high school. So I was, you know, busting my ass, hustling as hard as I could to get to a place like Brown. But I was still living with a very traumatic set of experiences that I didn't know how to process. And it was not safe to process because I was still uh, living with my dad at the time. So there was no way to really like heal when you're we're still in the thing. So I had been using weed as a way to blunt, dull, ignore, and go to bed um, from the age of 15. So by the time I got to college, unfortunately, it was just weed kind of took over my life. I, I smoked away a lot of my college experience. It's, um, I don't exactly regret it because now I won't do that again. You know, like now I really try to soak in my life and not run from my life. Um, and, and it did help me get through like not being in touch with my mood, not being in touch with these traumatic experiences, being able to dissociate so that I could continue to achieve and get myself to safety in some perverse ways it did work. Um, but a lot of my college experience, unfortunately was really in that, in that weed haze. Did you still then like make it to class and do all the things you were just in a haze or did you end up like sort of falling I, off? I never fell off. Um, but again, I was a theater kid, so I was doing like a puppetry class. <laughs> Is that what you was that where you were like majoring? Yeah, I, I doubled in playwriting and um, history. So like I was really drawn to stories. So I, I also compartmentalize like I wouldn't ever get high before class. Got but it. After class from like approximately like after I had written my essay to like. You're yeah. a very responsible stoner. <laughs> very, very, very motivated stoner. I took pride in it. It was like a part of my personality. I was like the hipster 
girl who's super high, but gets super good grades. And everyone's like, how does she do it? And I was like, yeah, that's me. I'm cool. Yeah. And it was a lot of my um, identity. Did you, was your sister, is your, is your sister younger than you? Yeah. She's uh, five years younger than me. Did you have any hard feelings about like you leaving and going off to college at that point and leaving her or like, what was your relationship with? Like, well, no, but only because when my, when I was 12 and she was six, um, or six or seven, my parents uh, divorced and they split us up. So I lived with my dad and my sister lived with my mom. And so we, and that was their choice too. Yeah, that was their choice. And so we didn't get to grow up together. And of all the things, um, you know, and I talk about a lot of them in, in my book, but of all the things that sort of like were done, you know, to me, the absolute worst, the one that I struggle to forgive is being separated from my sister because she was the only other person who could really understand. Um, and, and we barely understood we were just kids. And instead of us getting to be like a united front, we were torn apart. And it was only in the process of reparenting myself and going back to this relationship that I was able to mend it with my sister and, and get closer to her. But she didn't even, I don't think she clocked that I went to college because we were, she was already alone. Got it. Yeah. You were already living. It's not like, that's what I'm still imagining. You're all in the same house. And then what another layer that would be maybe perhaps to then I'm leaving, but yeah, still there. No, so totally. Maybe that's one good thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was, it was not tried. <laughs> like, we're not trying to find the positives in that, but like, oh, okay. Cause that's, I was just imagining that weighing on you of like leaving her. But no, what, you were already split up. What weighed on me though, and I'm very honest about this in the book, is I was a terrible older sister. I, I was fucking ni- a nightmare person to her. I was cruel. I was mean. I was selfish. I had no modeling of what love <laughs> looked like or the modeling I had was really um, not kind. And it took me many years to realize, oh shit, I'm the jerk. I, like I am suck. I, and, and the good news here is if I stop feeling guilty about it and if I stop wallowing in it and I start taking responsibility and I start being the sister I would like to be, and listening to her needs instead of me just like projecting what I, I think she wants. And I have a chance of having a great relationship with her and, and atoning essentially, which is the path I've been on for the past, I don't know, uh, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, for sure though, how would you, I mean, I, yeah, I'm sure people in shitty situations can be, but it's also like, yeah, you had no model to follow and you were in a shitty situation. I feel like being the oldest is more pressure. And yeah, it was, it was difficult. And I also feel like I saw, I think my parent, I think my mother was having a psychological break basically while I was coming into awareness. So I think I probably was there for more of the chaos, you know, I was just more conscious for it. Um, but I, but the lesson I've really learned through my relationship with my sister is you can mend basically any relationship 
if you are willing to be honest about who you are, what you contributed and, and just, and to let go of the guilt, because I just felt so guilty. You, you know, I, I was like, well, I was a kid. I didn't know what was going on. Like exactly what you're saying. But that guilt actually stopped me from just saying, well, it did happen that way. It, it, it kind of doesn't even matter why it happened that way. Like, yes, I need to forgive myself. But the bigger thing I need to do is move forward. Like we got to we got to find a new way. Yeah, I got that. Well, I'm so glad you saw that. And yeah. Of mending it. We That's Zoom so- all this. Just so you know, we, at once a week, we Zoom with uh, her fiance and we watch a movie together. So I'm, oh, it's great. Super sweet. Yeah. So don't worry about me and my sister. We're good. <laughs> okay. So back to college, yeah. you're still killing it as a stoner. <laughs> <laughs> so is there at that time, in it, like, do you have an idea of like what you want to do? And, or, and then like, what do you do once yeah. college ends? Or is that start in college? That was a fucking nightmare. And I, looking back, I think it was the, one of the first times I had a true anxiety depressive episode um, because I had spent so much time getting to college and now it was over. No, thank you. Like I felt like a discarded lover. I felt like Brown was betraying me. How dare they graduate me? Like what is, why, why can't I stay here? I was like clinging to the walls to stay. and. I, I I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I and it drove me insane. I I div- I I didn't sleep basically for a month. I was in some of the worst anguish um, of my life, and so my boyfriend at the time said, "Why don't you move with me to New York?" Um, my parents gave me an apartment, and I was like, "Wow, okay, I can't afford to go to New York, but if your parents gave you an apartment, show up in New York." little key detail missing. They didn't so much give him an apartment as they said, you can move back home. So I moved in with my college boyfriend and his parents in their two bedroom, small apartment in Manhattan. That didn't go great. Um, But it was about that time that I realized, okay, I've always loved theater. I I started working in the theater in New York. I was an intern at the public theater, which was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life. Like Susan Laurie Parks is just like walking down the halls. Um, And, you know, the the public is is such an institution. Um, If people don't know it, it's where they, where Hamilton comes from. It's like where some of our greatest um, American plays come from. But I realized, okay, these plays are mostly done for like a 99 seat audience. I this just feels very disconnected. Um, and theater is hard. Like everybody here is just, they're like eating canned soup, like own exclusively because they literally are not paid. Like they're, they're, it's not even like, Oh, they're paid, you know, so little. It's like, no, they're not paid. And they have some other side hustle job. And so that's when I was like, a a friend from the theater said, um, you should intern at the Daily Show if you can get an internship. And they thought, huh? Oh, that's interesting. That's that's such a crafted, amazing show. Just like my favorite plays are, you know, so well written and so well produced. Let me go check that out. And I thank God got an internship there. And this person that told you that was it? Like, did 
they know somebody there or like why were she just randomly suggesting? So that's a great question. He, Albert Huber, was actually an intern at The Daily Show. He was a theater kid who had done an internship and there was another person, an, an executive producer there who had gone to Brown. So it was a little bit of like, oh, like, I know you, you did this. Can I do this? Okay, cool. And I'm guessing, yeah, you had amazing, did you still have amazing grades at Brown? So like, yeah, it's like, how I'm guessing getting, I mean, to me, getting an internship at the show, like The Daily Show sounds like really challenging. But yeah. Is it like, oh, you know this person and you have this amazing transcript? Is that what they call it? I don't, yeah, I don't even know because like Brown is pass fail. So if you want it oh. to be, and I definitely did want it to be. So I don't even think I had amazing grades. I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even know there were colleges that did that. Yeah, there definitely are. Um, for for stoners like me, uh, it's probably why I didn't flunk out candidly. Um, but it's actually incredibly hard, and I have trouble getting people internships there. Like, I don't even think I've succeeded, and I worked at Comedy Central for a decade, so I don't even know why they let me in. But thank God they did, because that that internship changed my life. And so, yeah. So then when you're an intern at The Daily Show, is that end up, is that like a 40 hour, like, is that like a full time job sort of thing? Or I think I was there four days a week and did one day in theater. But basically, it was the recession. And I couldn't even get a job in New York. It was 2000. I just graduated in 2008. It was the recession. It was impossible to get a job, especially with my qualifications. I was living for free with my ex-boyfriend and his parents. So I had the opportunity to take an unpaid internship at The Daily Show. And I just hustled, hustled, hustled. So that, yeah, that's interesting as it's like not like, because I imagine when I would hear that, yeah, you worked at The Daily Show in the comedy center, like your dream was to be a comedy writer. (laughs) Well, yeah, I wasn't sure what my dream was. And part of me, it was to be a writer. And yeah, you were screenwriting, entertainment. yeah. Yeah, but I think... I just knew one thing I'm good at is knowing what I'm curious about. Like, and I am curious about a lot of things and following it. So I was really curious about what's TV like. Let me do this and just soak it in. Um, That's definitely like every good choice I've ever made usually starts with, oh, I'm really curious about that. What's that like? And then just like diving in and trying to learn as much as I can. So the reason I did The Daily Show was simply to learn about TV. And then did you end up staying on? So like, did you end up eventually getting a paid position? Basically, what happened was all the interns want to get discovered and are like, they're most like half of them are like aspiring stand-up comedians. And I noticed how annoying that was that they were like doing bits and like trying to get on people's radar. And I was like, uh, that's obviously not going to work. And is so So for an intern and you're like, yeah, like the interns are the ones like doing the shitty jobs around everywhere. Right. It's like, shut up. Yeah. I'm like, just make the photocopies. Jesus. Like this isn't like a show over here. So I decided I am going to be the quiet, super diligent, reliable intern. I don't need to be the funny one. I don't need to be the one that that they think, oh, hire as a writer. I want them to think of me as very responsible. And um, so I I, I approached it that way. I approached it with this idea that I would be the best at the worst. 
I would take every little small job and make it my bitch. And that was how I was going to get people's attention. And so there was this coffee machine that was right outside the, like a, like a coffee, a capsule coffee machine right outside of the stage area. And every night before the, the show, John, who I absolutely don't know as John, like I don't, I'm not on a first name basis with him. And I really don't ever want anyone to think, I think that, um, he would not know me today, but John would make his own coffee before, but in between rehearsal and going on stage. But I, I often saw that the coffee machine was like dirty out of water. There was like a weird blinking light. There were no capsules. So I was like, aha, this is where I can make a difference. This is where I can contribute. I can make this coffee machine my bitch. And that is exactly what I did. I became psychotic about the coffee machine. I visited it. I bought a similar model at home. I, I know how to fix that Nespresso machine, like internally fix. Um, and that did get the recognition of the EPs because I was the one you could rely on to fix the single most important piece of equipment in a creative environment. And they helped me get my first paid job at Comedy Central. Amazing. I love that story so much. And yeah, like the fact that you bought one. (laughs) I mean, again, like my curiosity, like it only like, and then looking back, I'm always like a little embarrassed by how obsessive I can be about things. But it was that like obsessive, like, I'm going to know everything that, that helped me out. Also, then I had coffee at home. <laughs> that was <laughs> Yeah. Like it wasn't just. For yeah. Research. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, like and even in that, like sort of like knowing like, OK, I want to stick around. Like I want to be one of the people that gets hired on. Were you thinking like were you just like, I, was, I like mm, I'm enjoying this. I want to work in TV. Or were you like, I want to have this sort of position? Or was it just sort of like. I like this. I want to be here doing anything. If I had had my druthers, obviously I wanted to be a writer on The Daily Show. I would have taken any position on The Daily Show, like anything to be closer to TV. Because at that point, I realized like, oh, TV, I love. There were no positions. No one was offering that to me. But Comedy Central had a website called jokes.com, which was their portal. Like their essentially it was just a homepage with a joke on it like that like level of sophistication um and that job was open and so all my friends are going to work for like Goldman Sachs or like McKinsey and I'm like I work at (laughs) jokes.com and it's not a joke um but the reason I did it was because it was a job in digital media which is something I I knew nothing about but nothing 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 hadn't learned about it at Brown in my like playwriting puppetry class, you know, or history, like no idea. But again, I was like, obviously it would be better if I knew more about this field. This could be like my grad school, you know, I could learn here and apply it to whatever. So that's why I took that job. Not because I wanted it, not because that was the job I wanted, not because I thought, oh, this is going to get me closer to writing, but because I thought this is going to teach me some skills. I mean, I'm guessing, did it eventually, yeah, you eventually moved to different positions, right? Right. So from, I use the same sort of mentality of like, just be the best at the worst, maximize every single opportunity. 
um, to become a crazy person who was just like, you, you could just trust me. That was one thing I, I noticed was that like, not everybody was reliable. And at a minimum, maybe I don't have the best ideas, but at a minimum, I can be reliable. And so after a few years of working my way up, um, I had a lot more leeway. And so when a show, a pilot called Key and Peel came to the network, I was able to say, hey, I want to be the digital producer of Key and Peel. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, well, I'm going to make extensions. I'm going to, I'm going to put the sketches online. We're going to build out their Twitter, their Facebook, you know, and I had the um, credibility with, with everybody because they knew I would, that I always followed through. Yeah. And so they let me become the digital producer of Key and Peel. And that was like my rocket ship into TV and, and how I ended up 100% switching from digital to broadcast television. Trisha here nudging you to buy yourself the fucking lilies like Tara says, but also if you've been considering it, buy yourself the fucking infrared sauna blanket that you likely have heard me talk about before. Maybe not. It is the best purchase I've made for myself. I bought mine two years ago and I still use it several times a week. It's like a sleeping bag. You get inside. I wear long pants, long sleeve shirt, socks, keep a lot of water nearby. And I lay in this thing and watch an awesome show for like 45 minutes to an hour and sweat out all the stress, all the pain, all the anxiety, all the frustrations. Seriously, it helps me so much no matter if I'm feeling not great in my body, not great in my mind, everything. Um, when I'm starting to feel sick, kicks out a lot of those buggies. This thing helps me so, so much. And by the way, I have chronic pain from fibromyalgia and sometimes it gets really bad. In some weeks I feel pretty damn good. But the one thing that always helps me is this infrared sauna blanket. You can go check it out. Use my code bit.ly backslash joy sauna. It's also in the show notes. Check it out. A lot of times they're out and you have to pre-order, but just do it. Hit the pre-order. You can also choose an interest-free payment plan and use my code joy75 for $75 off. Like seriously, if you've been thinking about getting this thing, do it. Everyone that I have convinced to get it tells me, oh my gosh, this changes my life. They're like, how many often can I use it? I feel so great afterwards. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. So go check it out. Feel free to DM me at your joyologist with any questions because I'm seriously obsessed and I want everybody to feel as good as I do after I use this thing. All right, let's get back to the episode. And during this time, and maybe it's during that time or in the next time that projects you into the digital television, were you feeling <laughs> validated? No. Were you feeling like joy? And you're like, it sounds like no. this is great, even though you kind of have some shitty jobs. Like, you know, in my mind, even like when I first got into the music business and that was all I wanted, like, even though like I was working crazy hours and not getting paid and blah, blah, blah. I was still like, this is where I want to be. I love the environment. So I joy like, yeah, like what were you feeling like? And what was your actual outside of work? Were you, did you I, dedicate yourself to work? Or? I was abjectly miserable. I was falling apart. So my book starts with my 25th birthday. 
I'm like starting to quote unquote make it at Comedy Central. So yeah, where are you at 25? 25 is before the Key and Peel. Probably like a year or two before Key and Peel. Okay. But I ha- I have I'm on a trajectory. I'm like climbing the corporate ladder. I'm living in New York. I'm good at work, but I'm bad at life. And I look good on the outside. Nobody at work would ever know that I came from a neglected household. Barely any of my friends knew that from college. You know, I wasn't something I ever spoke about. Um, And inside I was dying. And I, I, you know, the night of my 25th birthday, actually the next morning, I woke up on, on top of my aggressively floral duvet in my best, you know, girls night out Spanx Forever 21 sequin uh, tight situation. And I, I woke up and I had throw up in my hair, all these missed calls from my therapist and a grilled cheese sandwich lying next to me. I was like, well, this is not a good look. What the fuck happened here? And as I listened to the increasingly alarmed messages of my therapist, I realized I had drunk dialed her and I had threatened to hurt myself. And in a severe way where she was trying to find me to get me to go to the hospital. And that's when I realized I don't really have a life. I'm not going to survive this life unless I do something now. So it's, it's not like I was sitting by a candle contemplating what is self-care? It, it was more like, I think I will die if I don't take urgent, desperate action now. And so, yeah. Yeah. Did you have in your sober life, did you have, like, would you have thoughts of like, hurt, like no. suicide or stuff like that? Or was it just sort of like you would get wasted and then sort of. I, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to say because uh, of what a terrible place I was in, to be honest, I was in. So on a good day at work. So this job where on the outside, I look pretty good. It was a good day if I didn't openly weep in my cubicle and instead made it to the subway to cry there. I, I, I didn't, I lived in a permanent headache. I, I didn't understand why I felt anxiety. Like I would feel anxiety in my heart um, as like a knot that I would physically try to knead out um, between my heart and my armpit on the streets of Manhattan. Like I'm standing there trying to get it out. It was a desperate, terrible time. And I hated myself. I just utterly hated myself. And that anxiety and stress is your job like that stressful and the people you work with terrible? Is it your internal oh, no. stress? It was, like, I'm not good enough, like whatever, like wanting to please people. Like, what do you do? You, it was, I know it's hard to go back and do that, but like, what do you think would have been? I mean, looking back, it's very obvious that it was trauma. I mean, I had been through a terrible start at life and I had never dealt with it, had any of the tools to deal with it. And so it had just caught up with me. Um, the job is stressful. I, you know, went on to be um, vice president of talent development at Comedy Central, which, quote unquote, is a stressful job. And it is, but it's a different kind of stress. Um, And it and it took me a while to get good at like seeing what is this stress? Why is this stress? Is this 
is who, you know, who, like our jobs are important. They matter. Um, but this was something else. This was like my soul. This was something much deeper than I have so many meetings and how am I going to handle it? This was, I have a existential dread of this life. And so it's to answer your question, it's hard to say, um, really like how, um, suicidal or how on that spectrum I was most days other than most days, I didn't know how I would survive. If that makes sense. Like I didn't know how I was like, it would be easier to be dead, but I wasn't like actively planning. Yeah. That's only when I was drunk or high. Oh, this is so light. I hope everybody's really enjoying (laughs) this conversation. It's so like fun. (laughs) Which I know is in your book that you do the like, let's have some jokes. Yeah, like you have a discomfort with like, well, I do you think that comes from the fear of people are going to like me or I'm making people uncomfortable or a little like you trying to like, whoa, I don't want to be in this heavy place. Like, (laughs) no, I think it's easier. No, I think it's quite different. Actually, I think it's easier to be in the heavy places. If you remember, these places also exist. Like, yeah, I went through a really traumatic time. And I am a pretty grateful, stable, content adult human who is not overwhelmed by those things. Yeah. So like both are true at the same time. So the reason in my book that I, and I pray to God, it's a funny book, but one of the reasons I use humor so much is because it's disarming. It's, it's how do you get really vulnerable with somebody to make, to make someone cry in a drama is a lot easier than to make them laugh in a comedy. In order to laugh, you have to physically emit the weirdest, inexplicable human thing, which is a laugh. Like, what is a laugh even? Where the fuck does that come from? Um, so after a decade in comedy, what I've really learned, um, particularly from Jordan Peele, is you can use comedy for real change. Um and that's what I hope to be doing with my writing. Yeah, I don't know where I've heard it, but I remember hearing somebody say something like that, like, you know, laughter does sort of like make us get real with things. And I oftentimes am like very real and deep and then like laughing about it in a minute. And, and I don't and that was just my personality or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's just how I don't know. Whatever you just said and this other person I said makes sense to me. Yeah. So I wasn't like trying to be like, oh, you're trying to make that. I just remembered in your book that you'll be like, tell some like real shit and then be like, enter jokes here or like something. So it sort of feels like, oh, no, let's get light. (laughs) I love talking about it, too, because there is a difference between using comedy as a way to get closer to people and using comedy as a way to deflect and demean yourself. Yeah. So while I can be self-effacing, I am never self-demeaning. I no longer have any interest in putting myself down. I don't use comedy to put myself down. I don't use comedy to put other people down. I just don't have an interest in it. So I think it's a really valid point because you really can use it to minimize your own experience and those of others too. So the only reason I I love talking about it is because I'm just offering another way you could use comedy. Yeah. And that is true. I mean, and I, I used to self, what is it? Facing comedy or whatever. Yeah. 
I used to be so self-depreciating and mm-hmm. like friends would too. And then like same thing, once I started to learn more and evolve and I was just like, I don't want it like hear you and then even friends that like I thought were so funny that were so self-appreciating I'm not I like would be like that's uncomfortable for me I don't enjoy like that's not like no because also then you know like oh that like from knowing that person like that those are like real feelings they have about themselves too and be like I don't I'm not comfortable with you saying these things about yourself I'm not comfortable with you thinking that but I really am not comfortable with the fact you're trying to get me to I am like nodding my head vigorously because the more you're on this self-care kind of path and the more comfortable you become with the disgusting concept of loving yourself, the, the more you see, like you see in your friends, I have a friend who's constantly demeaning herself, like, you know, nothing's good. It's fine. Like, my mom did X, Y, Z. It's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm like, who are you fine for? Why are, why are we laughing about this terribly horrible thing that just happened to you? And to use your word, it makes me uncomfortable. And, and I've actually started saying to her, you know, um, you, you are making fun of my friend right now. And I don't like it. I don't stand for it. I don't like it. I don't want to be here for it. Um, I don't agree. And what's uncomfortable about saying that is it's so presumptuous, you know, to say to her, you know, the way you're talking about yourself is quote unquote wrong, but I just couldn't stand it anymore. And and I think as you love yourself and kind of come into alignment with who you most are, you, it's harder and harder to stand things that feel bad. Yeah. I even feel a little bit uncomfortable or just like, I don't understand when like on Instagram stories, people will be like, oh, I know my hair is messed up or I know my, I have these gray hairs, whatever. Like they're not making fun of themselves. They're just like, let me state this fact about myself that I'm pretty sure you're going to zero in on. And so I want to make sure you know about it. And I'm just like, who the fuck cares? Like I don't wear makeup and my hair is a mess most of the time. And yeah, part of me feels like I'm not good enough or I should look yeah. better or whatever. Right. Cause we're led to be these shoulds. But like for me, when you're naming that thing, I know I've been wearing the same sweatshirt every day, then it's sort of like a part of you feels like it's not okay. Yeah. Or somebody else is going to be judging me for this. So like, even though they're not self-depreciating, just like, let me name this fact. And right. I'm like, I wouldn't have even noticed your gray hairs. I wouldn't have even like, I don't care that you're not wearing makeup. You know, my take on that though, on like social media is like truly a whatever. Like whatever they, because you know what I'm thinking of is uh, my good friend Liz Moody. Who, if do you, do you know? I yeah, I don't know her personally, but I she's I enjoy following her. I'm, she's actually who told me about my podcast. Editor, uh, actually, oh awesome! <laughs> so Liz is a great friend. She is a fantastic chef, cookbook author, all around badass woman. Especially because she just she is who she is. There's no like. She's not trying to be some artificial anything. She really knows who she is. And on her Instagram stories, somebody wrote to her like, you shouldn't use a filter. Like, you should just be who you are. And I'm sure that person thought they were being like supportive in some way. Empowering her. Yeah. But it's also like, you don't actually know her. Let her use a twinkly filter if you want. And if we can all be a little less judgmental of other people, I think that would be a giant, giant gift to the world. But I, but I think when it's, when it's someone you love and they're being mean to themselves, that, that's where I do get a little judgy. <laughs> that's where I'm like, 
that's where the mama bear instinct comes out. Um, even maybe because I don't have kids and I'm like, I want to protect you. Uh, I actually, you know, I don't know if what I'm doing is right or wrong. It's just what's happening. Yeah. And I wasn't meaning to judge people that do that. And that's sort of, and I don't judge anybody or tell anybody to not I know do that. I you're saying. It. But it was yeah. something I caught myself on sort of. So I like stopped doing two years ago or something like that too. It was just like, why do I, because for me in naming it, it was the part of me was feeling like I wasn't enough or I'm going to be judged or they're going to be like, why is Trisha wear the sweatshirt every time? So oh, I better, interesting. You, know, like, you know what I mean? So that was for me. I love but, that. What a great so, knowing that you came to there yeah because i'm looped in on those damn fucking shoulds (laughs) they make me paying attention to that one word which is now feeling makes me very aware of why are you doing this what are you doing oh that's great and i'm gonna use your advice because sometimes i definitely am like uh like point out like um well mostly because i'm always just coming from a workout so like i always look like a little disheveled or i'm in my workout sweat and like feel a little gross. So I like oftentimes point it out, but maybe there's no reason to. That's what, yeah. People out there, you do what you're going to do. But for me, that was something that I noticed I was doing because I felt like I was making up for covering up, like whatever. It was a feeling of somehow I'm not enough. And so then I just had to be like, Trisha, this is what you look like. Are you okay with getting on Instagram stories right now? Whatever. Great. Then you don't need to announce. I you can't know, wait for your book. I need this book. <laughs> You're holding out on me. Um, back to you. Okay. First of all, though, awesome that you were actually seeing a therapist, you know, mm. even though it, it, I don't know how much it had, you know, like that might have helped you get to this point or something. But I do want to give you kudos to past Tara for the fact that she was talking. Yes, we should to a therapist. Her, we should definitely give her a high five. Because that decision, so I'm a huge therapy advocate. Therapists, I get DMs from therapists all the time, and I always send them back the starstruck emoji because therapists are my heroes. I'm shocked when they recommend the book to their clients. Like, true, like to me, that's the biggest gold star is that like actual mental health professionals find value in my book. (laughs) Like, wow and also to give back to the to that community which has given so much to me like gave me back my sanity um and yes i got to that rock bottom place not only with therapy but also on medication i was medicated. when did you decide to see a therapist in the first time or did you were you once did I, you go to one growing up or no so you know even though I was privileged growing up, it was high highs and low lows. So like one month we're going to Hawaii um, for like an epic vacation. The next, there's not enough money to see the dentist and we're not going back to your tutor because we're dodging a bill. And it's, it's actually one of those question marks of my life is like, were we poor? Because I was told, I was just told we're rich, we're poor, we're rich, we're poor. It was very disorienting. Um, and basically therapy was this thing where I'd get to have it for three months. I'd like, I'd have a depressive episode and I couldn't get out of bed. I remember in high school. So I'd go to therapy three for three months. Then I'd hear therapy's not worth the money. We can't afford it. You're out. And I, and therapy is expensive. So like, I don't, you know, judge my parents for that at all. Um, but basically I started being in 
regular therapy the moment I could afford it. And the moment I had health insurance that was my own and I, I didn't go to a fancy therapist. I went to the one that would take my insurance, the one therapist on the Isle of Manhattan who seemed to have a reasonable copay. That's who I went to. And I always did like until about three months ago, actually, I always looked, it just had to be somebody within my copay. Because I wanted it to be regular. I didn't want to cheap out on myself. I never wanted money to be the reason why I didn't go to therapy. It is. I mean, I'm guessing I wasn't allowed to have therapy as a mm, kid. Really? Which can tell you some things. The fact that I wanted therapy and yeah, wasn't no. allowed to have it. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing a lot of it had to do with the expense of it. Because we were very, my mom had to work so hard to support us so that we could have things and blah, blah, blah. It's like the many ways. Yeah. I mean, I just turned 40 and I feel like I'm just starting to like unravel some <laughs> like I always knew like at 15, I sort of I went really low and so sort of was like, well, fuck you. I don't think you people know what you're doing. So sort of what lived my own life my own way. But it's also so I've started my self love journey at 15. But at the same time with that, it was sort of and it still comes from, a, it started with nobody else cares about me, so I'm going to love myself. So it made me so awesome and so independent and so strong and so willing to go after these things I wanted. But I still believe, I just celebrated my 40th birthday, and I still have this unrelenting belief that nobody cares about me. Nobody wants to celebrate me. Like whenever my birthday comes around, I'm so excited. And then I still feel like, oh, nobody's even, nobody cares. Like it's so fun. Much work and so like I, you know, teach so much. Anyway, so like, yeah, in your book, like it's art, and it's also in like knowing, yeah, like we're all, and I'm a mom of the two little kids now, and so aware of I can be the most amazing mom and do everything quote unquote right, and they're still gonna have, yeah, you know, like some trauma. Yeah, (laughs) you know what I hope is that my book is not just for people who had um, traumatic childhoods at all it is for people whose parents nurtured the shit out of them and they had the ideal childhood what what I've realized from readers now across like different parts of the world is that what a lot of us share is we need to learn how to take care of ourselves that as we grow are so true to our needs and there's no way any kind of parent could ever give you everything you need, all the emotional support you need. And if you can figure out how to give it to yourself, you're in such a better position. You're not reliant on external validation. You you become more you. And and the whole process, you know, so I have this self-care book as memoir of self-care. I did it for five years. I've been doing um, this, this project of reparenting myself. I did it another five years. I do it every single day. Every single day, it's work. But what I can tell you emphatically is that this work is more joyful. What is terrible is to not want to take responsibility for your life, to blame it on other things that you can't ever fix, to um, avoid what is actually happening is a much more horrible, overwhelming experience than actually owning your story and figuring out what nurturing you need. And, and yeah, it's daily work. You know, today, um, I was like, 
I meditate every day. I pray every day. I, I have all these things I do every day. And at this point, it's not overwhelming. It's fun. It's like, oh, cool. Like it's an, another thing on the road. And if I can take myself not so seriously, if I can laugh about like, oh, this again, this old chestnut of my unworthiness has reared its head yet again. Cool, 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 cool. I can have a little bit of levity about it. I always find that it's easier to approach. That's a way to really cultivate self-compassion is, is to laugh a little. like a loving a loving laugh that you would give to somebody you're close to that you see is going through the same damn thing you can give that to yourself yeah no i agree and that's what it's like it always comes back to yourself and like yes you do need love from other people and support and you need to open yourself up and listen but like yourself and it is it's constant work and the same thing where it's like it's never gonna stop and I'm constantly like oh right Trisha this is another version of you're not enough like wait are you really not gonna like let yourself go do this or whatever you're not gonna say this like that so many of my stuff is like coming back to oh this is linked back to your believing that nobody cares about you but I'm aware of like so even in the like oh that fucking sucks that I feel that then it reminds me I don't have to believe that or like you know, or me be- being able to say to a friend, like I said to someone like, hey, well, let's, you know, it's pandemic also. Can't really do anything. But I've have like in my pod one place I've been going to write my book, too. So I was like, hey, maybe like, can we just like hang out at my birthday and whatever? And I was like, you know, and, and I said, it's also the Lunar New Year. So we can like celebrate that because in I'm saying this because, well, I don't want to like make this person have to hang out with me for my birthday. Like I usually go to the right, but we don't like hang out like as in the evening. And they were like, Trisha, your birthday is something enough to celebrate. That's a good friend. And I was like, you're right. I feel <laughs> attached to this idea that nobody, I'm not worthy of being celebrated. <laughs> One of the chief things I say to myself is I do not have to believe my beliefs. I don't have to. They're just beliefs. They're not the truth. I, I would like to believe the truth. And then, and I'd ask you, like, you know, the truth. You are cared about, you are loved. Like, you know, like the truth, but it's this belief that's all fucked up. So, I often like daily practice of saying, I don't have to believe my beliefs. I'm always reminding myself that. I love it. Um, okay. Let's get, I'm like, we, I'm like, we had a great talk and we didn't really talk much about it, which is great. Cause then hopefully it'll be like, everybody needs to really go get this book since we like, you know, really <laughs> we talk about it. If, <laughs> if you like this talk, you'll love the book. Fire Pick up the rest of this conversation yeah. in the book. But no, but what I do want to ask, like what motivated you to actually like one thing to do the work you're like, okay, I need to repair it myself. You hit that low. We're kind of like, you're at that low. We don't even talk about, but you, in our conversation, we get to that. So you do all these things and learn things. What makes you be like, I got to write this and put it out in the world? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about a hit rock bottom, my 25th birthday. The next morning I decide I need to be my own parent. How I start reading every memoir I can get my hands on, writing down the advice of like Nora Ephron, Cheryl Strayed, just like, how do I live a life? I start creepily watching how my friends' parents interact. Like, ooh, they made salmon and lentils. That seems like a combination. Or they didn't scream at everybody at dinner. Interesting. Like, just noting what I saw. I 
I would try on any advice I heard, any weird diet. Like, I, like truly, I would try anything. Like, maybe hydration's my problem. It was a little bit my problem. I, I wasn't drinking I enough water. Everybody needs a problem. Yeah, everybody, everybody needs to drink water. Need drink water. Um, and I, I kept this all in a Google document. And I, and the Google document kept building and building and building. And five years later, I had a 600-page Google Doc. And I was... A 600-page? Which and Were you tracking, I like, I, did you track, like, ideas plus, like, I tried this yes. for this many t- days? Yes. Like, what was the doc? Yeah, it was like... Um, Nora Ephron says it's the second glass of wine that keeps you up at night. Okay. Last night I drank five glasses of wine. What a fucking mistake. Next time you're out, try two. It really, it really was that methodical. I was going after it. I was really strategic and I don't recommend anyone have a 600 page Google doc. It takes way too long to load. I don't do that anymore. I know keep them in smaller Google Docs, because uh, I still do this to this day. Um, but, you know, coming out of that, I, I had always been writing on the side. I'd had some comedy pieces in The New Yorker. I wanted to write. That was always the executive thing was an amazing job. I loved it. Um, in the end, I did not love it when I was climbing up the ladder. But I always wanted to write. And so at the end of this Google Doc, I was like, wait. I have an offering. Like, I can't be the only person who feels this alone. And if I can make someone else feel less alone, then my, I will have mattered. Like, I, I, I will have contributed the way that Cheryl Strayed or David Sedaris contributed to my life than I could do for others. And that's when I decided to write the book. So you know, I, I never set, I did not set out on this reparenting journey to write a book. I set out to save my life. It was only in retrospect that I, I thought it might be helpful. So the Google doc was kind of like a journal. Yeah. Like and, an and online I, journal. And I had a journal. Like, Got it. but like I, you're writing in it like, oh, I learned this. This is how it went. And not sort of like, just like water. Seven days. Yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it's funny to look at my journals from the time because they say things like day seven of no hysterical crying. Yes. It's like, oh man, that was bleak. But I mean, like, like all these things about like running. Who knew that could make you feel good if your human body moved? Weird. It just, it's and it's sweet to look it's almost sweet to look back and to be like oh shit i was lost but i knew enough to know that i was worth helping and i'll oh, i mean the one thing i'm always grateful for is that you know you believe in god a universe whatever you believe in whatever force put us here gave me a want to be healthy i've always wanted to be healthy and I think that really helped me, um, guided me towards, towards this life. Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't know if I have, I'm like, I have 8 million <laughs> more questions, but then like also <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, did you always know to like, when you decided to write the book and you're like, well, you're like, I have this document, I have this information I wanted to share. Was it a struggle to figure out like, how do I write a book? Or like, did you also like, want it to be a straight memoir at any point because it's kind of like a mix of memoir and like what we call it like 
guidebook or yeah. prescriptive to people. <laughs> like self self care. It's like self help and memoir. It's um when we were pitching the book, it's called a genre buster. Um, a genre buster. It's like in between genres. Um, but it was very hard. I'd never written a book. I'd never fucking written like anything real. Um, but I, I never even looked at it. I never really got hung up on like, how are you going to write an entire book? I just started with like, what's right in front of me, write This one essay, write this essay idea, right. You know, like I broke it up into small chunks and I started just saying out loud to people I thought might have advice. I would like to write a book. What do you think? But like to the right people, not to shitty people who would like demean me, but to people who seemed like they liked me. And one night I said to my, she would later be my boss, but a colleague at the time, like, I think I want to write a book. And and she said, oh, you should talk to my friend who just wrote a book. She also had some stuff in the New Yorker. Talk to that friend. That friend was like, you should talk to my agent. Talk to that agent. And then that agent and I for nine months worked on the proposal. So, you know, like what I say about anything basically is you can do whatever you want. It just takes work. It's not magic. Like it's very good news because we can all work, you know, like it's not like divine intervention that like, oh, all the stars aligned. No, I was showing up every day in writing. I was asking people, how do you do this? And it's this, it's, that's the process I take towards my life now is reaching out to people, asking for help, trying to learn, trying to be looking for teachers all of the time. You know, I go to your Instagram account for some teaching. Like when I, yeah, like it can come from anywhere, you know? And if I need like a little pop of joy, a little like, hmm, good reframe, I'll, I'll like go to your page, but those things are around us. We just have to be willing to, to seek them and absorb them. So yeah, that was, that was how it sort of like the, the book journey came about. Yeah. I, I believe the same thing that we can make anything happen and just like, yeah, it takes believing in yourself and that possibility and then work. And sometimes it can be like, bam, you got it. And sometimes yeah. it's like, oh, to this, to this, to this, or like to 10 years later to like. Whatever. Yeah. And even if you don't believe in yourself, do the work because the work sometimes forces you to believe in yourself. Like some, a lot of my book is about, um, physical habits you can do in the real world to teach yourself that you're worthy. Because if I get in my head about, I need to feel loved, that is sometimes harder for me than if I take a really warm, sudsy bath, that will feel loving. And it will convince, it will work with my mind to show me that I am loved by me. Um, so just any like advice to anybody who's having trouble believing in themselves take that off the table and just do the thing that somebody who believed in themselves would do. That's, that's one of my hacks. Love that. Yeah, totally true. Cause it's really easy to doubt ourselves. Yeah. Or, and yeah, it's just like having a glimmer of a possibility. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> making a step towards it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, buy yourself the fucking lilies. Love the name. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Did that come also? Was that like an actual like moment? Yeah. So of, like 
in in this kind of like reparenting um I would go to Trader Joe's and like a, like I was also first off trying to figure out like what are vegetables and like which one should I eat and like what is a quinoa like that was a big part of this too um having grown up on like junk food and right, so you're doing emotional work but also like how do I be yeah. an adult human yeah <laughs> like like the book is it's funny because like I'm on a pretty woo-woo path currently but this book is not woo in the least it's like extremely practical about what physical changes could you make to your life today to be more nurturing and so I'd go to Trader Joe's and I would see lilies and I am obsessed with lilies I think they're beautiful and elegant and I love how they burst open with the most wonderful smell it's like the classiest of flowers and I would think oh those lilies would make my studio apartment 30 times better I can't afford them I can't afford seven dollars if I if I spend seven dollars now on myself on something as useless as lilies what financial ruin will that lead to in the future and I would just get on this horrible thought loop of all the ways I wasn't worthy and wasn't worth anything and this went on for years of these like fights and struggles. And as I got stronger and healthier, one day I was at the Trader Joe's and I was like, genuinely fuck this. I'm buying the fucking lilies. I, at a minimum, I deserve $7 lilies that like bring me joy. And, you know, I think for me, the reason that it was so good as a book title is we think of self-care as these like big elaborate, like I'm going to Tulum, like treat yourself. And that's great. And if somebody wants to send me to Tulum, cool, 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 cool. Like I'm there for that. But that's we're not... happy to do a sponsored episode yeah. on your Tulum resort. Yeah, exactly. If you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening please, please send me. We'll record another episode yeah. if you want to send us, and we'll just talk about how amazing. <laughs> totally, we'll do the Tulum special. I love it. I'm in. Um, but it's not self care. It's just it's fun. It's great. It could be celebratory, but it's not self-care. Self-care is taking the details of your day, taking where you actually are in your life, taking those things seriously and treating yourself like somebody who deserves to be taken care of. So real self-care is do your socks all have holes in them? If so, you should get some new socks. And arrange them in a way that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself. Do you have an ongoing issue with your quote unquote best friend who is just tearing you down and sucking the will to live out of you? If so, treat yourself like somebody who deserves friends who uplift them. It's an honest accounting of exactly where you are and then doing the nurturing that you need. So, you know, in the book I write, there's some pretty, I would say, joyful chapters about going to Tokyo and going to Paris, like big, fun adventures. That's definitely a part of it. But, you know, that is not in and of itself self-care. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's another thing that's sort of like moment to moment yeah. can be. <laughs> it is. It's how it's taking, it's actually like taking care of yourself. How am I treating myself? And sometimes that means, like I say, sometimes self care can be a pain in the ass because you have to like do this thing like you do. <laughs> Take, because it forces you. I mean, if you boil it all down, self care is, is simply actually living your life. 
Like making the best choices for yourself, which could mean saying no to something, which could mean not talking to that person that makes you feel like shit. (laughs) It's making choices in align with alignment with who you are, what feels good. And I don't mean in a uh, pounding. This was me like last week, pounding meringues and watermelon and weird protein cookies in my kitchen. I was like, you know, like binge eating because I was bored. Um, that I was like, this will feel good. No, it's discerning what actually feels good. What like makes you feel good and do that. Don't do these other things. <laughs> um, all right, let's get to. Oh, okay. I have too many documents open. I'm going to pull up. Is it showing the right thing? <laughs> um, do you see? These are all phrases from my product line that go on keychains. Ooh. And I ask every guest to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they need, want as a reminder in their mm. life right now and why. And then I will send you the keychain if you Ooh. want. It. So, like, what do you want to be like? Oh, yeah. Like, seeing it regularly. These are all great. You know, these are fantastic. This is so hard to pick. And I'm really trying to pick something that's like aspirational for me and that almost makes me uncomfortable. Exactly. I am magic. Oh, and why is that one? Because I can, you know, for all the quote unquote success I've had, like um, executive company central best-selling author, blah, blah. Like I get down on myself and doubt what I'm doing and like, did I do enough? And I think I am magic takes a little of the pressure off me. Like what if I was just magic? What, what if I was a like celestial glittery pulsating star magical thing? And I would like to get more on board with that. So I love that. Yeah. Love that way of looking at it and why you're choosing it. Um, okay. I ask everybody to relate this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit, a way of being something you noticed you're doing lately. What is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is What is easiest for me is to be in romantic relationships that are exhausting, going nowhere, and hurtful. I'm laughing. It's really not funny. It's my perfect kind of humor. And then what's the second part? I'm. What is best for me is. What is best for me is to take a pause and love myself. Yes. Um, All right. Oh, I missed one. I was like, I felt like something. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Mm, running. Because I, bef- I hate sports, hate athletes. I'm not, I'm an indoor kid. I never even used this body till the age of 25, um, ever. And in fact, right now I have um, a personal trainer over Zoom who often is like, tells me that it's good that I wasn't an athlete because my whole body isn't broken and I can now like do things. I'm like, interesting perspective, Laud. Um, but running, even though I never want to go out before the run, even though I'm always dreading it, even though it's hard and I'm not like, I never look forward to it afterwards. I 
I just feel so good. My body tingles with joy. If I'm ever in a bad mood, I always like hungover, didn't sleep enough. I I have pretty severe insomnia. So a lot of the time I'm just like tired. Um, And yet if I go sweat, I will feel more joyful. So running. Yep. It works. No, Ian, you were talking about back when you were 25 and you were like trying out or no, when you're reading back that journal and you were like, oh, and she, you know, she's like, this feels good. I was like, I still though will have moments of like, I forgot it, how good it feels. Like I didn't want to get out of bed and then I exercise for 20 minutes and I feel amazing. I, like, I still can like, whoa, what it- is this? The, the greatest human truth I can offer is work is sweat for 20 minutes a day. Change your life. Be a happy. You want to be a happier person? Cool, cool, cool. Sweat 20 minutes a day. That You don't need therapy. You don't need people to love you. You don't need a face mask. You just need to sweat for 20 minutes. So much happier. It is. I still am like, what is this miracle? Okay, the last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It. And that's because I feel so often we're putting our feelings of, you know, I'll feel enough once this happens. I'll feel worthy once this, you know, once they validate me, once whatever. And that I have to constantly remind myself that I can claim those things, those feelings for myself every day, sometimes in every moment. And I would like to ask you what you are claiming Mm. right now. Mm, That's such a good one. What am I? I'm claiming my trust in myself. I'm really attempting to only make choices that are strong yeses that feel good to me and to throw away every other expectation or judgment or should or whatever if it if it doesn't vibe with I trust my like I feel this trusting sense here then I'm not doing it and I'm so I'm claiming that and it's a moment to moment process. It's really like have to be like, do what you trust, do what you trust, do what you trust. I love that. And I get it. Cause yeah, even though, like I said, I've been working this path back since 15, where I was like, it's me against the world. It's still, you want to question, you, we question ourselves. And a lot of times it's those damn shoulds that are getting in the way. <laughs> oh, it's a process. It's a process. <laughs> and thank God, because if we had it all perfect, we, I mean, we'd be dead. Like there'd be nothing what, what, more to yeah, learn. What, what, life, what would life be without no. these games we play in our mind? <laughs> yeah, completely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tara. And yeah, everybody's going to need to go get by yourself the fucking lilies because we, we got into some things. Yeah. And I have to really see what her journey was like. How did she get from 25? To, yeah. To writing Read all about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was an utter delight. Yay. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, we love to hear from you, to know that you're listening, what parts you loved, all the things. So feel free to share about the episode, tag us, DM us. For full show notes, you can go to yourdryologist.com slash podcast and you'll find all the episodes there. You can find more from me, everything me at yourdryologist.com and I'm at yourdryologist. Tara, taraschuster.com and she's at Tara Schuster. Um, All that again will be in the show notes and 
make sure to get her book. Check it out. I think it also makes like a great gift, you know, because it's not like, here, you need this. I don't know. Just It's just like she has such a lightness and funness to it. So it doesn't feel as like an imposing of like, here is a self-help book, you know. It's all a lot of Tara's story and funny and will also help you very much. So again, if you haven't yet subscribed, leave a review. Thank you. Let's think of the final note for the day. What's something that you can do right now to up your joy levels? Put on a song after this that you can like sing your heart out to or dance to. Text a friend. What can you do right now to up your joy levels? All right. Thank you again so much for listening and um, have a great day. (laughs) Have a great life. Can you tell that I'm always like, wait, what, how do I sign off? You're awesome. We'll leave it there. You are awesome. Soak in that.